Good morning. This morning the reading will be from Daniel 6, starting in verse 1. If you uh, have a church Bible, it's on page 743. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Skip forward to verse 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of God's word. All right, well, we're going to waste no time, jump right in to Daniel 6, the final sermon in our brief series on the first half of Daniel. So I've got six lessons. Chapter 6, six lessons. Six lessons from Daniel chapter 6 as he goes into the lion's den. So I've entitled the sermon this morning, Lessons from the Lion's Den, and there'll be six of them if I haven't already said that enough. All right, number one, let's get into it. Lifestyle, a lesson about lifestyle. This is similar to what we saw in chapter 1 when Daniel and his three friends first get ushered in to Babylon in captivity, and we see how they behave while they're in Babylon. They're immensely respectful. They're immensely courageous. Those two things don't often go together. We think either we have to just assimilate completely, we're just going to become completely Babylonian now, lose all of our distinctiveness as the people of God, or we have to separate from Babylon and be belligerent against the government and speak out and raise our voices and protest. 
We get neither of those things in this book. And this book models for us how Christians are to engage a culture that is anti-Christian. Christians need to pay attention to the book of Daniel in our day. They need to spend time learning about how God's people are to relate to the broader culture in a way that does not separate and does not assimilate. And that is a very hard tension for us as God's people to manage. But we get an example of it here again in Daniel chapter 6. The first five verses show us the way Daniel continues to behave. And I'm not going to reread them because Joe just read them for us. But we see here how Daniel got the position he got in the government of Babylon. He was incorruptible, he was full of integrity, he was diligent, and he was exceptional in his work. That's how he got his job. That's how he got the promotion. Christians, a lot of times, aren't known. We aren't known for that. We're known for speaking out. We're known for being the guy in the office who has all these religious convictions and won't, doesn't bother sharing them. But how often are we known for being diligent and exceptional in our work? We must be. It's what the New Testament calls us to be. Whatever you do, work as unto the Lord, not as man-pleasers, not as those seeking an affirmation or a pat on the back from the boss, but as servants of Christ, which means we should be the most exceptional workers. And Daniel is here. You notice the officials, though, despite his exceptional labor, still try to find corruption in him. You wonder what's motivating this. What's motivating these satraps and these leaders' desire to undermine Daniel? Is it racial? Racial animosity? Perhaps. Was it professional jealousy? Maybe. I think a more likely answer is the fact that Daniel, by his diligence and his exceptional living and his virtue and his integrity and his godliness, exposed their hearts and their lives, and they didn't like it. Why do I say this? Because it's human nature that when we meet an incorruptible, virtuous, humble, and great person... It exposes our selfishness and sin. If you're dirty, you don't feel loathsome as long as you're surrounded by people like you. A clean person makes you feel foul. So a morally beautiful person makes us feel morally ugly and we hate it by nature. Romans 8, 7 says that the natural mind is not indifferent to God. It's hostile to God. It cannot submit to the will of God. We don't like to be reminded that there's something disordered and abnormal about the way we are. And so when we see it in another person, we try to get rid of it. And it's the public nature of Daniel's godliness and the way that he behaves, which is so striking. Because nothing is more offensive to ungodly people than the idea that one religion, one revelation from God is the true one. And this is certainly what Daniel believed. Daniel's loyalty to Jerusalem, to God's people, and to the people's God showed that he did not believe all religions are equally valid and that every nation's God were the right ones for them. So the question then becomes is, why don't we experience more persecution? We live in as much a pluralistic society as Daniel did, although fast becoming equally so. But we... Why don't we experience this? Well, I think we don't experience it because of a combination of two factors that we see here in Daniel's lifestyle. The first is he was extremely accomplished, successful, and well-regarded. And yet, he was openly committed to the exclusive faith of the Jewish people, which we would call Christianity today, the biblical worldview. So if he had either A or B, he, wouldn't, he would have been left alone. But he was both. And it was the combination of both of those things that led to his persecution and the persecution of his three friends in chapter 3. And really the persecution that Daniel and his three friends have experienced throughout this book. If he were never opposed, it is either because one... His life was not significantly different from anyone else's, which means he had completely assimilated to the people of Babylon, or he was somewhat cowardly and secretive about his faith. On the one hand, it could have been that he just completely assimilated. On the other hand, he could have completely separated. Either way, he would have avoided persecution. 
If he becomes like them, he avoids persecution. If he separates from them, he avoids persecution. But he does neither. He engages and remains distinct. He's separate spiritually, but not separate, or he's separate spatially. Sorry, I'm getting it wrong. He's separate spatially. He's not separate spatially. He's separate spiritually. I'll get it eventually. (laughs) Separate spiritually, not separate spatially. In the world, not of the world. You've heard that phrase before. So on uh, on the one hand, our lives often are not, sadly, characterized by any more wisdom, honesty, generosity, love, kindness, or joy than anyone else's. We're as grumpy and materialistic and selfish as the next person. And on the other hand, we're often afraid to reveal that we're committed believers. And as a result, we don't receive more pushback from the culture. By the way, I should have said this up front. These first three lessons are words of challenge. The last three lessons are words of comfort. So you can get a lot of challenge. We're going to get a lot of challenge on the front end of the sermon, but then a lot of comfort on the back end. So the first three lessons are going to be very, very challenging. And this is one of them. This is a very challenging word. In fact, I received a very challenging word from a fellow pastor via Twitter. Check it out. Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, faithful man, wrote the following on his Twitter account a couple of weeks ago. If your life is flowing along as you expected, it's manageable, everyone's saying nice things about you, when did you depart from God? Let that soak for a second. Blasted me like a three-ton truck when I read it. And Daniel's career and faith embody for us a lifestyle of what God had called his people to be during their exile in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. Do you remember Jeremiah 29 when Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon was coming. They were going to be invaded. They were going to be taken, up, taken out of, the, of Jerusalem and brought into captivity to Babylon. Remember how he told them to behave? He told them to assimilate. Don't assimilate, but don't separate. He said, go in, seek the well-being of the city, bless the city with your presence, seek to do good to all people, have have families, get married, raise children, but be my people there. Be my people. Represent me. Stand for what I stand for, but do it in a way that's dignified and polite and kind. And Daniel suffered hostility because, number one, he was deeply involved in Babylonian society. He was exceptionally competent He was a man of character and integrity, and he was openly committed to the exclusive Lord of creation. That's why he got heat, bottom line. And that's what we must aspire to be as faithful Christians, deeply engaged, exceptionally competent in where God has called us and gifted us and fitted us to serve him, being people of integrity and character, and at the same time openly committed to the exclusive truth claims of Jesus. And if we do that, we will likely experience something similar if we're able to achieve that standard of righteousness, which is what the standard of righteousness of the Bible holds up before us. So in short, Daniel was fair and broad in his sympathies and concerns and in his work for the common good in Babylon, but he was exclusive in his devotion to the one true Lord of the world. The world does not understand this combination. It does not get Christians who live this way. The world does not understand this combination because it expects people with exclusive views of God to be narrowly devoted to the concerns of their church. That is, if you're an exclusive person, you're exclusively concerned about exclusive things. You don't have any regard for neighbor or people or workplace or concerns that the broader world might be concerned about. That's not what we see in Daniel. He's concerned about things that are going on in Babylon, and he wants the prosperity and blessing to come upon Babylon. He's immensely connected to his neighbors and his friends, not just his exclusive church community. On the other hand, the world also expects people who have broad concerns about treating people fairly and all that stuff, which Daniel did, 
but they can't have exclusive views of God. Right? That's why Barry Sanders says what Barry Sanders says. Or not Barry Sanders. Who am I talking? Bernie Sanders. Barry Sanders was played baseball. <laughs> football and baseball. Bernie Sanders, you heard it, right? What he said about Christians. Because we hold to exclusive truth claims, we're dangerous for society. Because we're going we're gonna to be rude. And we're going to force everybody at their will, you know, a threat of prison to bow to the Lord Jesus. And no, that's not the case. That's not what we see in Daniel here. That's not what we see God commend at all in the way that he's to behave with his people, or his, the way his people are to behave in the broader culture. And so the culture gets surprised when someone with such a narrow view of God, like Daniel, is so broad and loving in his concerns. Now, obviously, he desires God to be known and glorified as the one true and living God. He's not backing off on that. And that's what gets him in the lion's den. That's what gets his three friends in the furnace. But nevertheless... Learn from his example of how he does this. He's a servant. He's not a cynic. He loves and cares for people. Scotty Smith, I quote from him quite a bit because I enjoy his prayers so much. This past week, threw out a prayer on his blog about, uh, I think, that helps us pray along the lines of being the kind of people and having the lifestyle that we should have, especially in our political climate today. No matter, his, he titled the prayer, No Matter the Political Temperature, Living as Servants, Not Cynics. And here's what he prayed. I'll just read the first part of it. He quotes from Jeremiah 29, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And Scotty prays the following. Heavenly Father, these words are pretty shocking you called your people to bring a redemptive presence in the pagan land of Babylon where you sent them into exile. Rather than making it their goal to get out of Babylon, they were to bring the first fruits of your kingdom there, even to Babylon. Help us as well to live and love to your glory, no matter our passport, the political atmosphere, or how pleased or disgusted we are with the government. Instead of being cynics, may we be servants and intercessors. Instead of withdrawing out of disgust, may we be engaged with hope and kindness. Instead of seeking judgment on our government, may we seek its peace and prosperity. Instead of throwing political grenades, may we seek love, mercy, and work for, the justice in our, work for justice in our communities. And he goes on to pray other things, but for the sake of time, I will move on. So that's a good lesson for us to learn. Meditate on that example of a lifestyle of godliness, which is neither separate nor assimilated, which is distinct and yet fully engaged. And let us pray to the Lord and that he would help us and enable us to be such people in our own time of exile. Second lesson, and these will, I trust, go a little bit quicker. Second lesson, we have a lesson here on law, on law. Notice verses 6 through 9 and what, how the officials respond to Daniel. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to the king, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius sign the document and injunction. Do you think that we are the first culture in the world to try to get what we want accomplished through legal means? That's the only means an unbelieving culture has. Appeal to the government. Get the law passed. And let it be a law according to the Medes and Persians. Now that phrase shows up several times in this chapter, the law of the Medes and Persians, and sometimes we've even used it as a joke to talk about things that can't be changed. We'll say something like, well, this isn't the law of the Medes and Persians. This is open for change at some point in the future. But the issue of the law is a very important part of this story, especially chapter 6. The law of the Medes and Persians is different and arguably an advance over the very arbitrary jurisprudence that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had. In the Medo-Persian Empire, which is, remember, the, the, the empire that conquered the Babylonians, as Daniel foretold in Daniel chapter 2, 
In the Medo-Persian Empire, a law, once it was decreed, could not be repealed by any judge, not even by the king himself. It was irrevocable. And this was a way to engender great respect for the law. It was to say, look, even the king himself can't change the law. Even the king is subject to the law. We must respect the law. It could now be truly said that there was one law for everybody. And it was also a way to unify the kingdom around a shared law code. Judges and other officials could not modify, disregard it, or reinterpret it at whim. So in a sense, Medo-Persian jurisprudence was a law and order administration. However, the inadequacy of this approach is seen in Daniel's case, where the rules about the enforcement of the law undermined its very purpose. Now, Daniel is the greatest upholder of justice and the law in Babylon, you could argue, by virtue of his character and his integrity, and yet he's a victim of injustice. Do you see this? Do you see this? He is becoming a victim of injustice because of the law. The king is also trapped and cannot do justice because of the law. This shows that the way to justice is neither to have laws that are weak and non-binding, as under Nebuchadnezzar, nor to make human law the absolute law. Rather, like Daniel, see verse 5, the previous verse, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Very important phrase. So like Daniel, we should base human laws on divine law and uphold them for that reason. When human laws deviate from divine law, we can identify them as unjust and overturn them, or even when they demand, when they demand, 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 keyword demand, not we just don't like them, but if they demand that we sin, then we have to disobey them. It's an Acts 5 situation. We must obey God rather than men. Ronald Wallace, commentator, writes, quote, The devil can flourish and work as effectively under the guise of law and order as he does under the guise of permissiveness. When Jesus was crucified, his main opponents were parties that were strong on the law and order issue. The devil can put on a conservative mask as easily as he can put on a revolutionary mask. End quote. Daniel's way is right. We must be as strong as he is in upholding justice and the law but also willing to bring human law under the scrutiny of God's revealed will. So there's a lesson about law. Thought it was interesting. Thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> number three, lesson number three, a lesson about prayer. A lesson about prayer. And we see this in verses 10 through 15, which we didn't read, so I will read together with us. Follow along with me if you have your copy of the Scriptures. Daniel 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had, he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God and as he had done previously. And then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. So what do we see about Daniel here? We see a characteristic response of all of God's people, a lesson that unfortunately we have to learn as God's people again and again and again, that when situations stack against us and there's no way out, we don't turn to anyone but God. We turn to the Lord. We don't try to manipulate a system, try to 
fix it by human means, try to do something of our own wisdom and will, we get down on our knees and we pray. We pray. And this is what, God, this is what Daniel does. His prayer life is habitual. It's not something that just was born out of a trial. He's praying three times a day regardless if he's meeting trials or not because he loves God. Again, Wallace writes, There is no doubt that what kept Daniel when his trial came was this rigid, uninterrupted habit. He had disciplined himself to it day by day for years, and at the hour of crisis, the very momentum of the custom itself would have been enough to keep him faithful to it, even if there had been at the moment no living inspirational incentive. End point. What's, my, what's, the, what's the point of the quote broken down? It's that even if there wasn't a trial, Daniel's still been praying. But the fact that there was a trial and he had been praying enabled him to navigate the trial properly. And that's the lesson we must learn. Commit ourselves in the non-trial seasons, in the non-difficult seasons, to habitual, habitual prayer, continual prayer, a lifestyle of prayer, so that when those difficulty comes, that we will be met in the spiritual frame to receive them and operate them in them correctly. If we fly off the handle, if we lose our wits, if we get frustrated, if we start breaking stuff, if, or if we just internalize it all and get real anxious and real worried and real distraught and real fearful, it should speak volumes to our soul that we're out of step with the Lord. It's almost impossible to begin or even resume a regular prayer life when you're buffeted by fears and troubles. We desperately need regular habits of prayer, worship, and communion with God, which is why we desperately need to be praying together as a body of Christ. So if you can be here on Wednesday, be here. Help cultivate that rhythm of prayer in your life so that when the trials come, you are armed. Also, we see that Daniel's prayer life was varied. He not only interceded and petitioned for himself, but he interceded for his people in his city. Notice in verse 11, he's asking God for help. And he's also engaged in thanksgiving, which is one, some of the hardest things to do when we're in the midst of, of trials and difficulties, isn't it? But no, did you notice that in verse, verse 10? He gives thanks before his God. You would think of all the times it'd be okay to not give thanks, now would be an okay time. You're getting ready to face the mouths of lions, to be consumed and eaten by them. But no, Daniel's thankful. And his prayer life is humble. He gets down on his knees. Now clearly, Daniel felt that it was important when he approached God to consciously to abandon any trace of pride that his secular vocation might have engendered in him. Think about it. He's a big timer. He's a high roller in Babylon. People know his name. They know who he is. He's way up in the upper echelon of government. And yet this mini king knows who the major king is. And he conscientiously abandons all traces of pride and adopts a body language of humility before God that others had to adopt before him. When they came into Daniel's presence, you better believe they're getting down on their knees. But when he comes into God, God's presence, you better believe he's getting down on his knees. It's probably true that the richer, cleverer, and more powerful we are in terms of worldly success, the more important it is for us to get down on our knees when we pray. Because it, perhaps the less congenial it may feel. And we need to feel our smallness, and we need to feel how unimportant in the grand scheme of things we really are compared to the greatness and glory of God. So there's a lesson in prayer. So those are our three words of challenge, and those are, those are, those are challenging words. You've got a, a, a challenge about lifestyle and a challenge about law and a challenge about prayer. Now let's move into some words of comfort in the second half of this chapter. Lesson number four, a lesson about heaven. Lesson about heaven. Now, this may sound a bit striking. Um, I'm actually not going to make a, an application about the trial in the lion's den, because I feel like it's the same sort of trial that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced in Daniel 3. It's a very similar trial. 
They're being thre- their, their lives are being threatened to be taken away from them. I just want to make a lesson about heaven because the imagery of lions, especially in the Old Testament, points us in that direction. You say, what? That's weird. Well, let me show you. Sinclair Ferguson, commentator, pastor, Bible teacher, seminary professor, says, in the Old Testament, the destructive power of lions metaphorically expressed the disharmony and chaos of the universe. Okay, so you get what he's saying. Metaphorically, in the Old Testament, when, when the image of a lion is brought up, it's used as a metaphorical idea of the disharmony and chaos that the present fallen world is in. And that deliverance from the troubles is often described as being among lions. Just a couple of verses, if you'll hold your finger there in Daniel and turn back to the book of Psalms. I'll take you to a couple Psalms here. Psalm 91 and verse 13 gives us this image as well. Psalm 91, 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Psalm 57, a few psalms back. Psalm 57, verses 4 through 6. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, and they have fallen into it themselves. But we see a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 7, that in the promised age to come, when the Lord returns and makes all things new, that the chaos of creation will be restored to order and harmony so that all creatures of nature will live together in peace. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. And thus, Daniel's deliverance here is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of the glory that is to come when God shuts the mouths of lions once and for all and restores creation to its proper functionality and provides a universal renovation of the entire cosmos. Just as the resurrection of Christ is a first fruits of the coming restoration of the whole world, and just as our salvation is a sign of that ultimate hope of the resurrection, so is the taming of the lions. Daniel is the godly man who is temporarily granted the dominion over nature that Adam should have had. Remember in Genesis 1, he told Adam, should exercise dominion over all creation and be his image. But that was lost in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of sin. But nature will be put right again. And this, this, this picture of Daniel in the lion's den gives us that hope. That nature will be made right and no longer subject to decay. And we will be put right at the same time as God's children. So God's salvation is not just forgiveness of sins and paradise in the afterlife. No, God is going to rehab this world and we are going to live on this earth new forever. That's the biblical hope. That's the biblical vision. Not floating on a cloud, playing a harp for eternity. Boring. What we get is renovated cosmos, resurrected universe, purged of sin, God is going to rehab and restore the heavens and the earth and all things will be put back together as they should be. And Daniel is a sign of heaven for us. And so when we read about the lion's den, we shouldn't just think about, oh, God is able to help me get delivered from my credit card debt. No, God is able to deliver you much better than that. He's able to deliver you into heaven, a world of peace forever, where the lions will lie down with the lambs. So therefore, the lion's den is a great portrait of comfort for us that God is able to restrain evil and eliminate it if necessary as he restrains the mouths of the lions from his people. And our greatest lions, brothers and sisters, are death 
and condemnation. And God has already delivered us from both of those things through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and faith in that work. So there's a lesson about heaven, which I hope encourages you. Second, a lesson about the kingdom of God and its durability and the fact that it's never going down and it's never going to be defeated. Look at this at the end of the chapter. It's the note that rings at the end of every single chapter of Daniel 1 through 6, God being worshiped at the end of it. And God puts his praise in the mouth of Darius this time. Verse 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to, to the end. And rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Think about this. In the story of Daniel chapter 6, it takes place in the reign of yet another king, the third one we've seen in the first six chapters, named Darius. That is in itself an indication of the theme of this book. Human kings come and go. God's still around. Human kingdoms rise and fall. God's kingdom won't. Daniel's still around. He's 80. He's in his 80s at this point, and he's still around. First, there was Nebuchadnezzar, and then there was Belshazzar, and now there's Darius. Kings of Babylon come and go, but God's kingdom persists, and Daniel is the living embodiment of the permanence of God's kingdom and the indestructibility of God's purpose. Even when all seems lost and Babylon is over, brothers and sisters, the Bible ends with Babylon is fallen. The kings of Babylon come and go. God's kingdom is forever. Who would have thought that at a court here could have survived the tumultuous successions from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar and now to Darius? This kingdom has experienced a total takeover by the Medo-Persian Empire, and yet Daniel's still around. Daniel's God is indeed the living God of whose kingdom there will never be an end. And as God's kingdom continues, so Daniel continues serving in the court of Babylon from Daniel 1 to Daniel 6. Brothers and sisters, we are characters in and carriers of the story of God. We are characters in the story of God, just like Daniel. We are car- we are, but we're also carriers of that story. We are to share it and make known to others. And finally, we've looked at three challenging words on lifestyle, law, and prayer. We've looked at two comforting words, I trust, on heaven and the kingdom of God. Now I want to give you one more comforting word on Jesus. Jesus. Perhaps no other chapter of Daniel in these first six chapters more closely resembles the life and ultimately the death of Jesus than this chapter. Think about it with me for just a moment. There are powerful leaders that are opposed to Daniel and are plotting for his downfall. Does that sound like your Lord? Daniel has prior knowledge of the plot against him and chooses not to flee. Daniel's accusers have great difficulty finding an accusation to bring against him, just as Pilate did. Daniel prayed three times prior to the main conflict, just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Daniel's accusers came to find him where he was praying, just as Jesus' accusers did. Darius did not want to execute Daniel and attempted to release him just as Pilate was reluctant to execute Jesus and attempted to find a way out of that. Darius was ultimately bound by the law to do as Daniel's accusers assisted, and Pilate was ultimately bound by the law to do as Jesus' accusers insisted. A stone, do you notice that? A stone was placed over the entrance to the lion's den. A stone was placed over the entrance to the tomb. The lion's den was sealed by Darius to prevent escape. The tomb was sealed by Pilate to prevent the body of Jesus from being stolen. Darius spent a restless night because of his concern for Daniel, just as Pilate's wife suffered a night at night in a dream because of Jesus. An angel 
shut the mouths of the lions. And an angel opened the tomb. And an interesting note to notice that Daniel was explaining, he said, when he was explaining what happened to him to Darius, he said, my God sent his angel to close the lion's mouth. We have seen that the angel of the Lord is God himself come to earth in corporal form. Many believe that the angel is the pre-incarnate Christ himself. So imagine Jesus coming down to effect an apparent death and resurrection in a tomb, knowing one day that he would experience a real one. And Daniel is found alive in the morning, just as Jesus was. And Darius issues a proclamation to all peoples, nations, and men of every language to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. And Jesus instructs his disciples post-resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that we have commanded because he is now the Lord and King of the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's too apparent not to see, isn't it? There's too many similarities between what's going on with Daniel and what's going on with the Lord Jesus. And I close this morning with a quote from Ian Duguid. He says the following about this account. The people that Jesus redeemed through his death and resurrection are not all super believers like Daniel. Most of us are ordinary sinners, people who cave in constantly to the unrighteous demands of the empire. From our earthly perspective, it may not seem to us that the motley assortment of deeply fault-flawed humanity that makes up the church has much to commend it. What kind of reward is this for Christ's suffering? Yet Jesus does not hesitate to call us beautiful. Even someone deeply sinful can be found beautiful before the perfect and holy God because he sees the end of the process, the glorious church that he will present to himself without flaw or wrinkle. My salvation rests not on my ability to dare to be a Daniel, but solely on the greater Daniel's perfect obedience in my place. In the midst of a world of trials and tribulation, that is where my peace and comfort rest. In the world to come, that will be all my glory, the righteousness of Christ given to me. Is that your hope? Pray that it is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend time in this book, which has been such a crash course, so to speak, in faithful Christianity and clinging to you in the darkest of days and reminding ourselves that we serve in and live under a king and a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that will not be overturned no matter what forces come against it. Nebuchadnezzar's, Belshazzar's, and Darius's may come and go, but your son, the Lord Jesus, will remain on his throne for all eternity until he comes again to bring us home to him and to bring his home to this earth. And we pray that it would come soon in his name. Amen. Delighted.
seated just one moment just got a couple of announcements before we get out of here um okay so please be in prayer for our youth they're heading out this afternoon on a rough river retreat uh, today and tomorrow so be praying for them pray for thad natalie and the other people other adults that are going as well to work with them and to give them a good retreat so pray god's blessing upon that also, um, speaking of youth, there's a, a car wash coming up for our young adults who are going to the DR in August with Pastor Keith. Um, July 22nd, mark that on your calendars and, and bring a fleet of cars with you to try to encourage uh, our youth and to give toward that car wash. Um, let's work to put uh, uh, Cheetah Clean out of business that day um, as, a, as a way of being good citizens of Babylon and desiring to prosper. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we, but we want to, we want to benefit, um, our youth as well. So, uh, those two announcements. And we also have one more announcement. I want to invite our brother Keith Withrow up. Keith is our deacon and he also represents the finance team. I, I, I said to you guys last week and made an announcement, which several of you had questions about, which I hope to try to answer. I'm sure the finance team has gotten questions about last week, next week, uh, 9 a.m., July 16th, we're going to meet in here 30 minutes before Sunday school to vote on a, a financial gift to Pastor Jonathan. Um, and Keith's going to be here to explain more in more detail about that. I spoke um, incorrectly on two accounts, and I want to clear that up right now. First, it's not a severance. I use that term inappropriately. And so Keith will hopefully help explain what I intended to say by that. And uh, I apologize for the confusion on that. And secondly, um, I had written in my original plan that, or a written original newsletter about July events that there was a significant change to the budget. And I, and I understand that some of you might have thought that that was being adding something or or that we were going to be taking money from some part of the budget and moving it to a different part of the budget. That's not the case. It's a reappropriation of a current budgetary line. And so, but I understand why I was confusing. So I wanted to call Keith up to speak on behalf of the finance team so that he can clear some things up as well. And we'll see you, Lord willing, at that meeting. So Keith, come. In fairness to Pastor Mark, the word severance was tossed about in uh, when we clarified what it meant. We obviously understood it wasn't what we're intending to bless our pastor Jonathan with. So appreciate that, Pastor Mark. Um, on behalf, normally Larry would be here. He's the chairman, but he happens to be in Italy at the moment. So uh, the lot fell to me when we drew straws. On behalf of the finance team, I want to clarify our recommendation concerning the gift to our former pastor. As we all know, Pastor Jonathan and his dear family have moved. He and his family served us well, since 2008, we each have benefited in numerous ways from their faithful service. In particular, Pastor Jonathan's ministry of the word to us all. Our recommendation came from a desire to be a blessing to a family who has so richly blessed us. Historically, as a church, we have extended to our outgoing pastors compensation for a period of six months. Two of those it's happened twice with Pastor Sam and Pastor Rich. This had set the precedent for our recommendation. Therefore, knowing that the present budget 
would not be affected by our generosity to Pastor Jonathan, Tina, and their children, we suggested six months. Six months of the basic salary. It would be the month of June through the month of November. Actually, concerning our budget, we will save in 2017 a one-month salary figure and also seven months of phone, internet, and miscellaneous pastoral expenses, which won't be uh, given to Pastor Jonathan. As a finance team, with the support of our elders, we merely make this as a recommendation. This is our heart on the matter. Next Sunday morning at 9, we will meet here to vote. Please come. Our encouragement as a finance team is simply this, that you would come and participate. Our goal together is to honor Christ. We want to be generous and a blessing to a man who was faithful to us as a pastor. So that's what this is about. So remember next week when you come, your voice and vote is very, very vital. And this passage of Scripture, I think, will set the context for us as a finance committee. And um, we're, not, we're not asking that you agree with us in all of this. If you have a suggestion, please write it down. But here, here's a verse that kind of guides our thinking. One who gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. We want to be generous, don't we? So that's from the finance team. Thank you very much. Thanks, brother. All right, let's stand together. I'll give us the benediction. And I want it to just be the last word. This is our last word in Daniel for a while, so I want to let Darius give our benediction because it's true. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions is the same one who has saved us. Go in God's peace, and may it be multiplied to you.